0: As uh, Pastor Greg mentioned, we have been making our way through the book of Colossians, and so we come to uh, Colossians 4 this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, would you turn with me, as we'll be considering chapter 4, looking at verses uh, 2 through 6 this morning. Colossians 4, we'll begin reading verse 2. seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Would you join in praying with me and asking that God would help us as we've heard his word that we would not only hear with our ears, but that he would cause good fruit to bear in our lives from it. Our Father, we do look to you this morning and we are so thankful that we can come and be reminded of the things that are true and that you've revealed in your word. We're We're thankful because we're often prone to forget. Even as we've confessed this morning, we're so prone to allow our circumstances to dictate what we feel or what we think or what we ultimately perceive to be true. And Lord, how necessary and how important it is for us to hear what is ultimately true of who you are, what you've done for us and your son and what you've declared in the good gospel that has been given to us in your word. Father, our great desire is, as we've sung this morning, to submit to you. As we've just said, not our will, but yours be done. As we've sung, whatever you ordain, it is right, that it is good, and that it is fitting. Lord, the great expression of our lives, not only in the songs that we sing, but our posture this morning with your word before us, Lord, we confess that our submission unto you is again declared with your word open that it's your authority over our lives, that it's your revelation that we need uh, to be brought into our lives and to illuminate who we are and even the very details of how we think and pray and live. So, Father, as an act of glad submission unto you, we bow underneath the good authority of your word. And, Father, we pray that in our doing this, you would be so gracious to give us hearts of meekness that we might receive the implanted Word, that it is able to save us. Father, cause your Word to be placed within hearts of good soil, the sort of soil that, Lord, only you can produce, the sort of soil that receives only the Word that you can give, and that bears only the fruit that you can produce. So do this in our lives for your glory, and because we so desperately need it. For Christ's sake, amen. Who is responsible for spreading the gospel. Maybe you've thought about that. Maybe you have an answer to that. Uh, maybe you grew up in a church in which uh, sort of context where an evangelist would come certain seasons of the year. People of your city were invited to come and to hear him speak. And that's framed up a lot of your thoughts towards evangelism. Sometimes Christians band together and they form organizations, like the New Hope Evangelistic Association? Are those the people that are responsible and called to make the gospel known to the surrounding community or world? Or is this the primary job of pastors, those that are gifted for preaching and teaching? Should evangelism be left to the trained specialists while the ordinary members ensure that there are comfortable chairs, good coffee, and people in the seats that they've invited Is that the model? Meaning, is the ordinary Christian doing evangelism similar to the ordinary car owner attempting to change out their transmission? They might do it, but should they do it? Is that the model that we see in Scripture? Christian, what is your responsibility to the world around you? Colossians 4 has some really important instruction arguing that the average, ordinary Christian is not only responsible to, but resourced to share the gospel with the outside world. If We keep the context of and the flow of Paul's letter before us. We remember how Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, if you just glance back there, how central those four verses are to the remainder of the letter. Essentially, Paul has been saying, look, to be a Christian, it means that your identity, your purpose, your affections, your abilities, they have been changed. You have died to sin. You are alive in Christ. You're resurrected with Him. You are hid with Him. And when He appears, you shall appear with Him in glory. The reality of who Christ is and who we are in Him, it revolutionizes earthly living. This is not just something that awaits you in future glory, that right now, this reality transforms who you are as you live the remainder of your days on this earth. And so what this means is that life in Christ is more than just theological head knowledge. Life in Christ is more than just lip service in which you say things that you know you should say. This transformation, according to Paul, will be seen not only in the way that we think, but in the way that we live. And if you remember the flow of Colossians 3 and into 4, he's very particular in different areas in which we live, that this transformation will be seen in the church, the way that we relate to one another, where he talks about bearing with one another in love and forgiving as we have been forgiven. There's several one another's in that portion of Scripture, and that would be speaking to the gathered body. But he goes on and he speaks to the home because he talks to wives and husbands, children and parents. He talks about the vocations that we have as well. And then this portion of scripture that's here before us says that this transformation should also impact the way that we relate to the watching world. Because we have been delivered from sin, redeemed and reconciled to God, we will long for others to know this as well. And it will be seen, according to Paul, in the content of our prayers and the conduct of our lives. This is the third area in which Paul says, if this is true of you in Christ, then this is true of you in your life. It will be seen in the content of our prayers and the conduct of our lives. So let's consider first how our praying should bear the fruit of our being in Christ. Look back at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. If we were to listen into the content of most Christians' prayers what might we hear? Or better, what ought we to be hearing? Certainly, the themes and emphasis of Christ's teaching in Matthew chapter 6, which we actually just read this morning when he said, Pray in this way, that should probably shape and inform much of what we pray. You stand back and you look at the larger scope of New Testament teaching and you'll find examples of prayers of praise, of adoration, of prayers of confession, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of supplication, where we make our requests known. Certainly all of those categories should inform our prayer. But what sort of requests are we making to God? What sort of things are we asking for? Well, the teaching here in Colossians 4 would move us to see that one expression of our new life in Christ is going to be seen in the outward focus of our prayers. Let's first look at what I'm going to call the posture in prayer. And by posture here, I'm not thinking about your physical posture, if you're standing or sitting or kneeling, but the shape and the, the structure of your prayer itself. What is the skeletal structure that is to give proper posture to your praying. Well, in verse 2, the first thing is we're to have a posture of watchfulness. Think how often in Scripture that these themes of prayer and watchfulness are married together. Certainly Christ's instruction in Matthew 26, verse 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer and prayer that is watchful. Now the reason for such exhortations is that the Christian is somebody who realizes that he is not in neutral or peaceful territory. The life that he's living in Christ is not neutral. It's actually hostile. We are surrounded by hostile threats, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we think of prayer as in part is overwatch. Or we are in a position in which we are mindful Of these hostile dangers and our prayers reflect a certain posture that say I'm not in neutral territory I'm actually in hostile territory there are all sorts of dangers toils and snares that could do me much harm therefore I pray with this posture of watchfulness what sort of dangers are there certainly every Christian recognizes the pressing reality of temptation Please don't make the mistake of thinking that you're a Christian, so that means you're not tempted. Or that you're embarrassed to admit that you're tempted. How often do we fall prey to that trap? I can't tell somebody I was tempted to sin. Have we not read our Bibles? Do we not know that every day the allure of temptation presses upon us? It should be normative for Christians to recognize the pressing, constant pressing danger of temptation and the allure that it is. And so a Christian is in part watchful. Temptation can just simply be defined as anything, whether it's a situation, a state of being, a condition, a circumstance that has the power to lure or entice a person's mind and heart away from obeying God towards committing sin. Anything in your life that would lure you away from obeying God and committing sin, that is a potential area of temptation. So we're watchful. But we're also watchful not just for temptation. I think we should say we're watchful recognizing we have an enemy around us. Peter's exhortation is a very vivid illustration. The exhortation in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour i'm a little more watchful when i realize there's a lion lurking seeking to devour there is someone who is a deceiver he's an adversary and he seeks to deceive and be adversarial by his very being so i watch knowing i have an enemy But I think we also ought to be watchful in the sense of the destruction that's wrought by false teaching. The Christian is also mindful of the importance of sound doctrine and the great undermining damage that can be done by false doctrine. I mention that because that's certainly an emphasis of this letter. Do you remember Colossians chapter 2 where Paul, if you look back at verse 8, says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There is a danger, he says, that you might actually be taken captive, in bondage to something that you believe is good, but is actually contrary to Christ. And he goes on even further, if you look down at verse 23 of chapter 2, speaking of these teachings, these have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Appearance of wisdom, but ultimately no value. So, a loving Christian and a healthy church member is going to be mindful of these dangers and adopt this posture of watchfulness that will be heard in their prayers. Be steadfast in your praying, the posture of watchfulness. This Christian is watchful over their own soul, mindful of these particular temptations, mindful of these particular hostilities. And a faithful Christian is also seeking to watch over their fellow members. Remember, as a member of this church, that's one of the promises we make to one another in our church covenant, that we will be watchful over one another that we're concerned with one another, and that concern is expressed in our care for one another and the way that we spend time with one another, the sort of questions that we ask of one another, the sort of things that we confess to one another and confess to the other person, that we're seeking to care for one another by this posture of watchfulness, mindful of the realities that we live in. We understand that it's a spiritual battle, and so we're thinking along the lines of spiritual defenses. Watchful prayer, friends, is essentially responsive prayer. God has spoken in His Word, and we respond with requests to be found walking in truth, placing our trust in Him, and seeking to have the aid that He supplies to walk according to His good design. We read His Word, we hear the instruction, and then we respond back to Him in prayer. So there's a watchfulness that marks our posture, but it's not only a posture of, walk, of watchfulness. It should also be marked by thanksgiving. That's the other thing Paul says in verse 2. Now, this is not the first time that this charge of thanksgiving has shown up. If you just read through this consecutively, your ears would have perked up. This is like the fourth time Paul has mentioned thanksgiving in the manner of just a few verses. If you look back at verse 15 of chapter 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be Thankful, verse 16, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Verse 17, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and Father through Him. Biblical thankfulness is more than glib Pollyanna moralism. It's not just this outward restraint to say, I'm just going to give thanks for everything, Biblical thankfulness, Christian thankfulness, is the fruit of remembering what we deserve and yet what God has given. There is an element that we can create in thankfulness purely and merely just on a moralistic, secular worldview. But biblical thankfulness takes it to a different extreme and says, who is God? Who am I? What do I deserve? And yet, what has God given to me? And there's something unique about that that only a Christian can respond in that tenor and tone of thankfulness. Thankfulness in prayer is a helpful discipline in calling to mind the kindness of God. in Calling to mind his sovereign rule over all things. in calling to mind our position as gracious recipients of what he's given. Thankfulness is not only a helpful discipline, but it's a helpful guard against bitterness, cynicism, depression, self-centeredness. How often we move with our woes and our weeping of how bad we have it. And it may be bad, friends. But let's run that through first. The category is who is God? Who am I? What do I deserve? What is he given? Thankfulness is this guard and this discipline that helps us truly see things as they are. It is that necessary polarizing filter that you drop down over your circumstances that enables you to see what you cannot see apart from the reality of who you are and who God is and what the scriptures have revealed in Christ. When you drop that lens over your circumstances, suddenly the very same things that are just as real are seen in a new light. And that's why it's possible, friends, to have dear friends who walk through dark circumstances and yet you know them to be thankful people. And maybe if you're not a Christian and you're wondering how in the world does somebody do that, do they just have more self-restraint? Do they just have a, a, a stoic optimism, that it's just going to work out. The Christian has a form of thankfulness that isn't more than just optimism, that's more than just resolve, it's more than just white-knuckled grit. It's actually a work of God's Spirit to where we begin to see things as they really are, who God is and who we are. The content of our prayers are most certainly shaped by these elements of watchfulness and thankfulness. But the content of our prayers should also have a certain focus. Anyone who is set out to pray eventually knows the great struggle of wandering thoughts and a mind that just begins to deviate. I have a friend who would refer to it as, the monkeys are now running the zoo. When you start to pray and suddenly they've got out of their cage and all your thoughts are running everywhere. How often does that happen? We need a certain focus to our praying. And for this reason, this clear aim or focus in our prayers is tremendously helpful. And what does Paul teach us by example here and what he asked prayer for? How might our prayers be more conformed to the pattern of Scripture as we think about those outside of Christ? And if you're in a bit of a rut, as you have a category for praying along these lines, maybe you pray the same thing or it just has lost meaning. Friend, I would encourage you, look at what Paul prays for here and see how it might be a helpful example and a pattern for focus. What does Paul consider? What does he ask for? First, we're to pray for open doors. Do you see that in verse 3? This has everything to do with when will we speak. The irony of the situation, maybe you saw it there. Paul is currently in prison, but he's praying for open doors. Another reminder that there is no circumstance that is prohibitive to the gospel. I think we often imagine that the more opportune time will come, or maybe a more ideal circumstance will present itself, and then we will speak for Christ. But right now, just the conditions are not right. So we'll we'll keep praying. Instead, what we're exhorted here for is to pray for open doors in the midst of circumstances. Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter one is a good example of this because he, at the very beginning of the letter, he assures the Philippian Christians that he says, My circumstances, you have to read between the lines there, he's in prison, have actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Do you remember this portion? Philippians 1, verse 13, he says, So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is in Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak without fear. Paul actually considered his present circumstances in prison not as a hindrance, but the very thing he asked for prayer for, an open door. The whole palace guard has heard about Christ. And as a result, others who know I'm in prison and know about the palace guard hearing about Christ, they are suddenly emboldened to say, what am I shrinking back for? Paul's in prison. We can do this. And so there is this great encouragement. How often are we praying for opportunities and open doors for God's word to be shared? Is that a part of your focus in your praying. Who you are in Christ, has that showed up in the way that you pray and think about those who are outside? To the degree that you're praying, God, give me open doors. Give me opportunities. In my experience, it's not that God fails to provide the opportunities, but it's my blindness to those open doors. But, maybe you found this to be true. As soon as you begin praying for the open doors, you begin to see them. It's like when you get a new car, and then suddenly you see everybody else has that same brand all over the highway. Well, they've always been there. You start praying for open doors, and look what happens. So what might happen if an entire church continued steadfastly in prayer, asking for God to open doors for the word? What might happen? How many doors might that be? How many opportunities might that present? Paul leads us by example in praying one focus ought to be praying for open doors. But the second part of verse three, we are encouraged to pray that we would speak of Christ. This has everything to do with the question of, and what will we speak of? When I'm looking for open doors and what will we say? Now, when Paul speaks of a mystery here, as he says in verse 3, to declare the mystery of Christ, he's not thinking of a secret, or he's not thinking of something that was completely unknown. He's thinking and talking about more of the idea of taking something that was partially understood and now making it more clear. That's the sense in which the Bible uses mystery in regards to what was revealed in the Old Testament, but now is being proclaimed and illuminated in the New The mystery of Christ is the same announcement made by the angel at Christ's birth. This is good news of great joy for all people. That's a part of the mystery. To speak of Christ is to speak of a rescuer, of a Messiah, of a promised one who's come to save a people for himself out of every tribe and people, language and nation. If you look back to chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 25, Context of this very thing that Paul's asking for prayer for is illuminated here. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Which is Christ in you, Colossians, the hope of glory? That's who the you is. This is the mystery that I've been called to proclaim that this Christ is for the nations. And so praying that we might speak of Christ has everything to do with what we will be sharing when that door opens up. Now, Christian, are you clear on what this message is? Do you have stage fright? You've been praying for open doors the conversation starts to move in a particular direction there's no denying it this is a massive 26-foot garage bay roll-up door that you can now just step right into are you clear on what that message is if you're not a Christian are you clear on what this message is that actually is good news Have you maybe assumed that Christianity and the message that Christians talk about is somehow related to making your life better? Or maybe it's particular advice to be more fulfilled, how you could overcome particular challenges in your life, deal with setbacks, be a better person. What we speak of is this, God, We speak of God being who he is, creator, sustainer, judge and ruler of the earth. All adoration and all obedience is owed to him. We begin to speak of man. That we're created in the image of this God. and That we exist to reflect his glory through our glad obedience to him. Through our dependence upon him. But. We also talk about how we're actually ruined by sin. We're ruined by this corruption and new desire that in our natural state of birth, that we're bent on glorifying self and that we're bent towards gratifying our desires. And this perversion is not just that we do bad things, but we ultimately do them against the best God, the only God, the God who's only and always been good to his creation. And so it's the highest form of treachery and treason, and it's called sin, and it deserves judgment, and God will righteously judge all sinners who do not repent. And then we begin to speak of Christ, that this same God sent his Son to be the perfect mediator between God, and man to pay the penalty for sin upon the shoulders of Christ on this cross in order to secure forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration unto this God so that God can dwell with man just as he intended in the creation of all things. Friend, this is good news for you, whether you're a Christian or not. This is good news for you because the promise is extended to any who would repent of sin and believe in the provision of Christ for sinners. And by the way, in passing, if you have more questions about this or you would like to ask a little more implications of what that might mean, I would encourage you after service to turn to the person next to you and say, can you tell me more about what it means to be a Christian? It's perfectly okay to ask blunt questions like that at this church. You can also ask me on the way out, hey, I'd love to talk to you more this week about what you were talking about. We exist in part as a church to know Christ and to make him known. And So if you want to know more of that, we would encourage you to speak up. And if you don't, and you're here more than a week or two, somebody's going to find you, and they're going to ask you that question anyway. So we're going to get to it eventually. We're not only praying for open doors, we're not only praying that we would speak of Christ but verse 4, we are, by Paul's instruction, to be praying for clarity. Now, this has everything to do with the question of how well will we speak. Not when, not what, but how well will we speak in this open door for Christ? I think it's comforting, just by way of observation, to know that the Apostle Paul asked for prayer that he would speak clearly. Clearly. Friends, you're in good company. If you're concerned about wanting to articulate the gospel faithfully and clearly, the Apostle Paul had that same desire. Though he was an apostle, he yet himself still felt this great dependence upon God and the prayers of the saints to say, Would you pray for me that when I speak, I would speak clearly as I ought to? There's something very comforting and maybe even convicting in that. The concern, though, here is not just simply for clarity of thought, but faithfulness to reveal the full revelation of Christ's person and ministry. As I ought to speak. I want to be clear, as I should. Meaning, that we're so clear in our gospel presentation that we're not shrinking back in any way, downplaying or minimizing any aspect of Scripture or only emphasizing certain benefits of the gospel, but that we are being so clear that we are speaking as we ought to speak. We're making it clear, talking about the exclusivity of Christ, that it's not just one option among many options, but friend, this is the only option. That we're being very clear about the reality of hell, that it's an eternal, conscious, Judgment against sin. That there is the resurrection from the dead. And not only will God's people receive resurrected bodies in which they shall enjoy all the glories of dwelling with God in perfection. Do you understand that the scriptures also teach that there's a resurrection from the dead for those who will not dwell with God but will have a body that is recreated to endure the eternal torture of hell. It's that bad. And we're not shrinking back from that. We're speaking of the fullness of Christ. We're speaking the glory of his person, the hope of the redemption from sin, the assurance of cleansing from all sin in Christ. Church, there is such a great need for clarity in our day. Are you laying hold of the primary elements of this gospel message? Are you growing in knowledge of Christ and his ministry in person? Are you marveling at how he is the perfect mediator between God and man, unraveling the ministry of Christ, the offices, meditating upon him being the priest, the prophet, the king, and how in those offices he fully represents the Father to the people and represents the people to himself the ministry that is given to us in the Son. And are you doing this, friend, not merely just to gain a head knowledge so you can fill a journal with notes, but that you are doing so to grow in wisdom and clarity so that you might be able to proclaim it to others? One expression of our new life in Christ is going to be seen and heard in the outward focus of our prayers. And I, can I encourage you just in passing, if you want to grow in this area, Grow in prayer. One of the best ways to grow in prayer is to hear others pray. It's one of the reasons why we have a corporate prayer meeting at 5.30. Prayer certainly accomplishes things, but it's also how we learn to pray. Come hear some of the faithful, seasoned saints intercede on behalf of you and what's happening in our world, in our community, and you begin to learn and hear, that's what that sounds like. And before you know it, you are shaped. You're learning. You're watching. God's design is very gracious that he doesn't just throw us out there and say, go pray. He gives us his word and he gives us his people. And we begin to learn in that way. Our outward focus, not only in the content of our prayers, verses 5 and 6, the very conduct of our lives. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The subject of wisdom, that's mentioned here in verse 5. It comes up five or six times in this brief letter. And it's primarily spoken of or used in the sense of, in the context of God's people being filled with the knowledge of God's will, laying hold of the great treasure that we have in Christ. One example, just glance back at Colossians 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That God's people would be filled with the knowledge of God's will Laying hold of the great treasure that we have in Christ. That is wisdom. That you would walk in wisdom. The emphasis here in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 is that Christians would not merely hold doctrinal truths in their head, which they should, but conduct themselves in such a way that those doctrinal truths are shaping daily life. Specifically, how are you and I to relate to those outside of the church? How are you and I to relate to those who are not here, but are in your neighborhood, that are in your workplace, maybe that are around your dinner table? This section is a clear reminder that while faithful evangelism must include words, those words can be severely undermined or strengthened by the conduct of our lives. to speak of Christ means you must speak but you must walk in such a way that would strengthen those very words that you're speaking so the call for wisdom here it implies just the possibility of foolishness before we get into this let's just make the obvious really obvious it is possible to be a christian to be reconciled to God, to lay hold of doctrinal truth, and yet walk in foolishness to those outside of the church. And that is grievous. And so, to walk in wisdom means that we're conducting ourselves in such a way that it supports, rather than hinders, the witness to outsiders. But, wise in what way? Well, Paul gives us two. That we would be wise with our time, verse 5, and wise with our words, verse 6. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outsiders, first of all, in regards to your time. Making the best use of the time. I think underneath this charge is a biblical principle. The principle is that our lives are not our own. If you're going to make the best use of your time, you have to understand there's some principle under it. This is not just mere productivity. This is not industrial revolution saying, look, you have 24 hours in the day. Maximize your productivity from dawn to dusk. Be immediate in what you're doing. Productivity may be a part of this conversation. But more importantly is the purpose to which you have been given time. Your life is not your own. And if that becomes clear, then this exhortation toward wisdom becomes a little clear. We are stewards of our time. The problem is that we tend to overestimate how much time we actually have and to just assume it'll work out eventually. We are famous for doing that. One of my summer reads recent months was uh, this book, and I read through it. Um, in a couple of days, the premise of the book was that the author got into the habit of asking coworkers and friends, how many weeks are in the average lifespan? I've read the studies like human average lifespan is X many years. And so we just ask him, how many weeks do you think that is that we actually have on average? And the responses he got were always overestimates. So I'm saying 50,000 weeks, 25,000 weeks, 10,000 weeks. If the average lifespan is 75 years, that means you have 4,000 weeks. According to my math and these averages, I've got about 1,500 weeks left. Now I could have one, (laughs) but averages. It hits differently, doesn't it? When you say birth to grave, average 4,000 weeks. The whole point of the book was how bad we are at estimating actually how much time that we have and how good we are at assuming that it will all just kind of eventually come together. But when you begin, like Moses, to say, teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom, then suddenly things look a little different in the way that you line up your weeks, your months, your years. We must be wise with our time. We're to be wise with our time by making the best use of it. And the best use of something is defined by the ultimate purpose for it. Now, other passages parallel in this, exhorting us to redeem the time. Making the most of every opportunity that we have with outsiders. Because the context of the message, for one, it's good news. And because of the context of our lives. These days are evil. That's the exhortation in Ephesians. Make the most of your time, redeem the time, because the days are evil. You have really good news, and it's in a context of really bad things. There's an urgency to that. We make the most of our time because of the sense of urgency. This sense of urgency means that we're essentially buying up opportunity. Don't just sit there and wait for opportunity to fall into your lap. Move forward, buy up the entire investment, and say, make the most of what you've been given. Make the most of how you plan your weeks. Just very practically. Are you creating time in your weekly, monthly calendar to pursue opportunities and the very open doors that you've been praying for with outsiders? Make the best use of time in how you direct your conversations. Are you looking for inroads to possible gospel conversations? Are you looking for inroads to just move the conversation to spiritual things? Maybe you won't even get to a full presentation of God and man and Christ and the response. But can I just get, can I get like a little bit of crack in the door just to begin to talk about the reality of spiritual things? Because we live in a materialistic world, whether you want to admit it or not. And so the thought of spiritual realities is often far from people. But how much does the scriptures teach that our lives are not just mere flesh and bone? We are body and soul. We're immortal souls and mortal bodies. And so we want to move conversations towards spiritual things. And so we're seeking to make the best use of our time. Again, what might happen if a church body became so intentional about how they spent their time organizing their lives To be mindful of those who are outside of the church. A major part of faithful evangelism and speaking for Christ is looking for opportunities. We're praying for open doors and then we seek to make some room for those possibilities. Walk in wisdom according to our time. We must be wise with our time. But then in verse 6, we must also be wise with our words. Now, when Paul mentions our speech, he's thinking about daily conversations. The sort of speech that you could easily make a lane change towards gospel communication. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's like being on a roundabout with 14 lanes, and you know you've got to get over there somehow. But I'm going to try and do it. Challenge accepted that with my speech, that I'm at least making it easier to try and make a lane change towards spiritual conversations. Sometimes I make it much harder on myself, don't I? I've got to have like six lane changes, a different highway, and then a passport just to even begin talking about spiritual realities because where this conversation has gone or where I've led it. So I want to be wise with my words. Well, How do we do that? He mentions gracious speech, a speech that's marked by attractiveness, winsomeness. A good summary of this would be the command of Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. That's the most gracious thing you can do. The name of our church is Veritas Church. Maybe you're visiting and you wondered and you said, thank you, I was wondering how to pronounce that. It's Latin for truth. We want to speak the truth in love. It's not original. It's given to us in Ephesians chapter 4. Gracious speech. But also speech that's seasoned with salt. Just as food that's seasoned with salt has a preserving and flavor-enhancing effect, so should the speech of God's people. The sort of speech that is not going to corrupt and rot but it's going to build up and preserve. That's what salty speech really is. It's not going to rot you out after a time. It's not going to eventually erode the conversation, but it's the sort of speech seasoned with salt that's going to preserve and build up. And then he says also just be ready. He's already asked for prayer that he might speak as he ought to speak back in verse 4, and then, then notice what he does here. He exhorts the Colossians as to how they ought to speak, in verse 6. Now, knowing how to answer others requires a measure of wisdom. We want to be wise with our words. This does not mean that we become know-it-alls, and that we could never be those who utter those horrible words, I don't know. That's actually a good thing to say. It's not what Paul is saying, that learn so much that you can never learn anything else. But he's saying, be prepared. Be wise with your words in such a way that you know how to respond. There ought to be a growing sense of preparedness within us as believers so that the way that we respond to non-Christians, it doesn't shut down the conversation or discredit any testimony that we might have. We want to be wise. Think of the exhortation 1 Peter three fifteen. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You know the next few words that are there? Because oftentimes apologetic ministries love this verse, put it on their website, their coffee mugs and everything. But there's a few words right after that. There's a semicolon. Yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. Always be ready to give a defense with gentleness and respect. Now, if you step back, you see what's actually the most plain thing here. The emphasis and tone of this closing section is that there is never a time when our responsibilities towards those outside can be far from our minds. We should always be praying for opportunities for the gospel to be preached and to easily, eagerly seize those opportunities even if our circumstances are unfavorable. We should make use of every moment to respond to others in a Christian manner that God gives us opportunity. And no matter how little someone may understand or how combative they might be, we strive to answer them with the sort of words that will spark their interest and further conversation about Christ. It was Augustine who made the observation that sin has this distorting and disabling effect and that it causes us to be curved inwards. Grace transforms our distorted posture. By nature, we love self. We are oblivious to God. We actually hate him. And we're actually oblivious to the world. Because we are curved inwards, fascinated with ourselves, seeking to please ourselves and gratify ourselves. But when we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, when the grace of God comes and transforms our understanding of who God is and who we are, our posture changes, sometimes slowly, but it is most certainly eventually fully, that we become less and less consumed with self and we become more aware of the glory and beauty of Christ. And we become more aware of those who are actually around us. Jesus put it this way, that it's this reality of loving God and loving neighbor. That is one of the tremendously beautiful effects of the gospel. If we are raised with Christ, we will seek the reality of his rule. And this will be seen in the way that we relate to one another the way that we relate to one another in our homes, and the way that we relate to the outside world. If then, you've been raised with Christ, you then will live like this. And so just as a Christian turned in on themselves cannot faithfully serve God and care for those around them, the same is true with the church. So we care deeply about the health of the church, but not so that we can just build our own little inbred kingdom, but that so this through this healthy church, we might be faithful stewards to proclaim the gospel to those who are outside. Because the church is the means and the end of missions. The church is God's means to save and to bring the gospel to all nations. And so we continue to care about walking in wisdom, with our time, with our words, and the very tone of our prayer. We pray for open doors to speak of Christ with boldness and clarity, and we seek to walk in wisdom the remainder of our days, how many ever days or weeks we are given that we say, Lord, help me to walk in wisdom with them. As we're doing that, may God continue to just awaken us as his people to the glorious realities that we share in Christ so that we, too, are those who are compelled to say, I must speak of Christ. Give me opportunities, Father, this week to speak. Father, we do, in fact, pray those very things. Help us to live in such a way that we are mindful not only of the gospel that has transformed us, but the great desire to see the outside world hear of this same gospel message. Lord, grow us in our prayers that they would be shaped and filled with all of the wisdom that is here before us in Scripture. Help us in our very conduct and the way that we live our lives, that we might be wise in the way that we speak, and wise in the way that we fill our days, that Lord, we might live unto your glory, the measure of days that you have given us, the the glad hearts that we've already sung this morning, that whatever you ordain is right. And so, Lord, we want to be found walking in faithfulness. Lord, we pray that the gospel would continue to motivate and shape us as your people. We pray. Amen.